God wants to use you. And you're like, me. And I'm like, yes, you. God wants to use you. You who are the nurse, God wants to use you. You who are uh, the stay-at-home mom, God wants to use you. Uh, you, the, the investment banker, God wants to use you. Uh, you, the person sleeping in the back row, God wants to use you too. Um, he wants to use us. He wants to use us if we're young. He wants to use us uh, when we're old. Uh, actually, speaking of which, is there anyone here who's over 65? Yes. Great. We're so glad we're here. A round of applause. Absolutely. <laughs> Come back. Invite your friends. Um, but God's plan for your life doesn't retire at 65, does it? And for the kids joining us today, you're not too young to be used by God either. But that's hard, that's hard for us to believe. Some of us might find it hard to believe that God is real. Um, but we're not really talking about that today. There's people sitting next to you. They're, they're Christians. They believe that God has acted and spoken in history um, and acts and speaks in their life. So that's a, that's a crazy belief. So just take the opportunity at the end to, to kind of nudge them and be like, what's that all about? You know, grill them a bit about it. Um, but for others, the problem isn't with belief in God, right? It's, it's with ourselves. Why would God want to use me? Why would God want to use me? That the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the stars into existence, whose very breath brings life and flowers and trees and leaves and parrots. (laughs) I was thinking about parrots this week. The one who sustains, and it says, holds the universe together by the word of his power, gravity, math, The sunrise, these are regular and constant. God sustains them. And yet God cares to use you and me. See, that's hard to believe. That's that's hard to accept. I have a hard time accepting that. I have a hard time believing that. That God would care to use me. I often don't feel like I'm good enough. I feel inadequate. Thursday I uh, felt inadequate. I came home from work. I came huffing into the kitchen. There's Sandra. I'm like, another sermon, another week. I don't know what to say. I don't have any more illustrations. A year and a half of pastoring, and I'm all out of things to say. I'm done. I, I can't do it. And Sandra says, good. Now God can actually use you. Now God can actually speak. And I know all of you will have felt this way at one time. You know, how can the God of the universe use me? You feel small. You feel inadequate. You feel inadequate at places like the schoolyard, right? They haul at friends. They're popular. I'm just a loner. Or you might feel inadequate at work. I'm just a cog in the wheel. If I don't make my quota, they'll just cut me off. I'm dispendable, expendable. You might feel that way in your family. You know, she has all the looks, he has the degree, he has all, I don't know, she has the smarts, these kinds of things. I feel this way on St. Catherine Street. I'm walking down the street and I see the sea of people and I feel just inadequate. How can God actually use me? Can I really make a difference? And the answer to this is, is yes, yes. God can actually use you. God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. God takes joy. He takes delight in taking that which is ordinary and making it extraordinary. 
that in the kingdom of God, it's the least that are made greatest. It's the poor who are made rich. It's the weak that are made strong. And yet, like Sandra had to point out to me, I have to get out of the way. I have to get out of the way. Well, why? Well, because it's not about me. It was never about me. It's not about us. It's about him. We're in a sermon series right now on the biblical book of Acts. And today we're seeing how God was able to take and to use ordinary people to spread the church out in extraordinary ways. And it starts in verse 19. Now there... Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And so we have the persecution, and it's spreading the church out to these different places. And one of those places was the city of Antioch. Um, And then we have the verse here, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus, men of Cyrene. Now, these would have been Jewish men, but they were born in these different places. Uh, Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean, uh, now its own nation. Uh, Cyrene is in North Africa. It's where modern-day Libya is. And so you have these men, and on coming to Antioch, it says, on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And so you have these men coming to the city of Antioch and preaching. And a great number of people, they're believing and they're they're turning, it says, to the Lord. And so you have a church community being formed. You have, this is an all original uh, church plant. But who were these men? Who was that core uh, APES team that planted this church? Who was the relentless pioneering pastor who worked the hard soil? Who were the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers here? Well, we don't know. It doesn't say. Their names aren't given. Why? Because it's not really about them. It was never about their names being known, right? The church exists not to make their names known, but to make God's name known. To make his name great. But to do this, we have to get out of the way. I tried to think of an example of this. You know, the unknown person making the gospel known. I was like, that's that's not going to work. They're unknown, right? (laughs) But then I was thinking, well, think about John the Baptist, right? The one who announces the arrival of Jesus. His whole ministry is about himself getting out of the way. He says, a voice, I'm a voice in the wilderness. Clear the way, prepare the way of the Lord. And, in, and when he sees Jesus, when he sees Jesus in the gospel of John, it says, my joy is now complete. I must decrease that he might increase. And that's it. From that point, he disappears from the narrative in the gospel of John. And so you see, it's not really about us. We're merely a voice in the wilderness. We're merely messengers, making a name greater than ourselves, the greatest name known. And yet so many of us, we want to make our names known. We want to make a name for ourselves. Think about, think about whatever you're up to right now, the thing that takes the most of your time, a portfolio Is that portfolio about making your name known or about making God's name known? Or your kids? 
Are those kids about carrying on your name and legacy or about carrying out the name of God to the world? And I get it. I get it. We want to be extraordinary. We want to, we want to be the rich and the famous and the beautiful and the powerful and the whatever, the wealthy. And yet, and yet it says, for him to increase, that we must decrease. For him to increase, we must decrease. We must. And this is one of those, those striking, counterintuitive pieces that gets right to the heart of the kingdom of God. That in order for you to be used extraordinarily, in order for you to be used for those things that matter most, seeing joy and peace and goodness breaking forth, the fame and the riches of the kingdom of God and God's name being known, you have to get out of the way. And so are you in the way? Are you in the way of God making his name known? But why should we get out of the way? This is what this is all about, this sermon. What happens when ordinary people, so ordinary that their names are unknown, make the gospel known? And the church that we're reading about, the church of Antioch, is a great example of why. It wasn't started by preaching of the apostles, right? It wasn't started by the boldness of Stephen, It wasn't started by the miracles of Peter. No. No, this is a church started by ordinary people. People like you and you and you and me. Ordinary. People that God was able to use. People that God wants to use. And our text shows us at least four different things that happen when we get out of the way. First, there's unity and diversity. Second, we're able to receive with humility. Third, transformation, and finally, we can give with generosity. So first, we'll start with unity and diversity, and that's verse 19 to 21. So following the persecution of Stephen, you have these, these unknown men getting, getting sent to different places, and some of them, they end up in the city of Antioch. Now, a trip to the city of, uh, of Antioch was really, it was a trip to the big city, Antioch was kind of the place to be. Antioch to Jerusalem would have been a lot, I don't know, maybe like Montreal is to St. Jerome. Um, It was a hot spot, right? It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And in it, you had this convergence of, of east and west and north and south. And you had Greek people and Roman people and Persian people and Jewish people all kind of in this big mashup of... It's a city of 500,000 people. So you have this convergence of beliefs and languages, and you had paganism, and you had uh, Jewish um, synagogues, a little Jewish population. But into this city come some Jews who believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel. And they began, it says in verse 19, to proclaim that news in Jewish synagogues, that Jesus is Lord. But then in verse 20 it says, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so what do you have here? Well, it says that they're preaching to the Hellenists. That's Greek. But this is in contrast to what it just said in 19, verse 19, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So these Hellenists, they're not uh, Jewish Greeks. They're pagan Gentiles. They're pagan Greeks. In other words... 
these men proclaiming Jesus, they began to understand, even without that vision and Cornelius that Jeff preached about last week, these men began to understand that the claims of Jesus are universal. The claims of Jesus are for everyone. And, and so this is what it says, that they were preaching the Lord Jesus. That if Jesus is Lord, he's not just Lord for the Jews. It isn't just true for Jews. This is true for all people at all places at all times. This is true for the Jew and the non-Jew. And this has massive implications. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. And yet we tend to to compartmentalize it, to to sort of section it off. We say, oh, the the gospel. Well, yeah, that's for those people over there who are who are kind of Christian, they need to hear the gospel. But those people over there, they're not really the religious type. And those people over there, well, they already have their own religion. They don't, they don't need to hear the gospel. And you see, that's a, that's a sectioning off. That's a compartmentalizing of Jesus' lordship. That's not bowing to his universal claims. You won't compartmentalize it. Um... That's a compartmentalizing of some of his, of his universal uh, claims. And so what do they do? They preach the Lord Jesus. And what happens? I'll keep going. Verse 21. Uh, the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so you have in this city um, uh, the Greeks and the Romans and the Persians and the, the Semitic and the Asian people. And so in a big city, of course, you have the diverse races and the diverse cultures. And naturally, you'd probably also have tension. You have, you know, this group over there here who, like, disdains this group over there. And this group over here who, like, disdains this group over here. And yet in this, some of these people, they begin listening to the preaching of the gospel. And they believe. And what is it that they believe? Well... <laughs> It's that those, those, those quirky old Jewish prophets were right. That there, there is one God who is Lord of all. And all people need to bow the knee to him. That we're in trouble. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. All races, all cultures, all people are equally in need of God. We all need to turn around. We all need to repent for the ways that we haven't submitted to him as Lord of all. In other words, we're all ordinary Rebels. And yet, in this, God has extended his extraordinary grace. The good news is that he has stepped in and he himself has passed through the judgment that was deserved us. He passed through the judgment of death so that we could have his life. And some of them, they hear this message and they begin to believe it. They begin to believe that, well, you, just like me, We were just ordinary rebels before God. And when we didn't deserve it, he extended his extraordinary grace to you just like he did to me. And so what begins to happen between those people when they believe that? Well, the disdain, it begins to dissolve, right? And there begins to exist in Antioch a new group from different races and different cultures acting like family. And then there's the people who... They're looking in and they're saying, well, what's going on here? This is unusual. They can't quite put their finger on it, right? This group isn't Jewish. This group isn't Gentile. This group doesn't buy into cultural norms. This group is very diverse and yet it's unified. And so what do they do? Well, 
they make up a new term. They look at whatever, what is this binding this group together, and they, they give it a new term. And that's what it says in verse 27. Um, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the new term they made up, that they were Christians. This was the church in Antioch. Is this our church? Is this what binds us together? Not class, not race, not culture, nothing but the extraordinary grace of Jesus. Is this what people, when, when they're outside of Church 21, when they look in at our church, do they see Christ as our primary identity? I pray that this is true for us. Unity and diversity. This is what happens when ordinary people, rebels rescued by the grace of God, get out of the way and make the gospel known. And what else happens? Two, they receive with humility. This is verse 22 to 25. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them. What is Barnabas glad to find when he comes to Antioch? Was it five strategies to grow your church among the pagans? No. Was it lights and lasers? No. No. Was it miracles? No. No. The grace of God, verse 23, he, it says, when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. It's the grace of God that makes him glad. What makes you glad? What brings you joy? Is it the attendance on a summer Sunday? <laughs> Probably not. Is it a good band? Is it seeing miracles? No, all these things, they point beyond themselves. They point to our need for the grace of God. And trying to increase ourselves, trying to, to be extraordinary, trying to, like we saw, to make a name for ourselves, to make ourselves known, that can never lead to joy. And you say, well, I'm, I'm just trying to be happy. Well, how's that working out for you? Remember John? When, when did he say his joy was complete? Well, when he sees Jesus, that's when he's satisfied. That's when he's able to, to decrease and get out of the way. And then what happens? The grace of God increases. And it's the grace of God. It's encountering the grace of God that is our true well of joy. That is what should be making us glad. And when you've encountered and you've been able to receive the grace of God, you'll be able to, to turn and extend it to others. And you see this as we keep going. Verse 23. Um, Barnabas exhorted them to remain faithful in the Lord with steadfast purpose. And where we have here, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. So first you have Barnabas coming to Antioch. And then Barnabas, there's a lot of teaching to do, so he needs backup. So he goes and gets Paul. And so you have both Barnabas and Paul in Antioch. But neither of them had planted the church, right? Neither of them had put in that hard work of, of tilling the soil. And yet, and yet, you see the evidence that the grace of God is at work there in Antioch. The church in Antioch, it doesn't push them away. It doesn't say like, no, no, not your business, not your 
people, we don't need your help. No, it, it receives them. It receives their teaching. And this takes, receiving teaching, it takes getting out of the way. It says, there's a sense of it which says, you know what? I might be wrong about certain things here. I need to stop. I need to listen. And listening, it, that takes humility. That takes being able to receive with humility. And so they're able to receive with humility. Do you recognize your need to receive with humility? Do you recognize your need for the church? Um, I grew up in a church community, and I want to say this uh, carefully. There's, a, there's many people that I still know and love who attend that community. Uh, but I grew up in a church community that, that thought itself as the only right place to be on a Sunday morning. That because of a particular set of doctrines that they hold, um, they thought that they were only biblically correct church in the city. And they would say something like, if Jesus was here on a Sunday morning, he'd be, he'd be here with us. He'd be here at our church. Now watch out for a church. If you ever hear that from a church, watch out for a church like that. But growing up in this, that wasn't exactly how I thought. But I was affected by some of that way of thinking. And I, I didn't believe we were the only right church. But I did think, well, we're probably the best church that if we were ranked, you know, we would be the, at the top, you know, the most biblically sound church. But, but did God ever have to show me? Did God ever have to show me? It was, um, I was at a, a church service on my, fir- in my first Sunday in Oxford, and I was away. And at that church service, somebody stood up to pray uh, the congregational prayer. And as they prayed, something in my spirit broke. And I began to weep. God began to, to, to work in my heart and to begin to change some of the pride that had been there. And I don't remember what it was that they prayed precisely. But I think it was that they were actually praying for other churches in the same city. And there was, there was no pride there. There was no pretense. No, it, was just, it was just humility. It was a recognition of the need for the whole church Together, do you recognize your need for the church? Church community has this way of, uh, of humbling you, uh, doesn't it? For the church, for the people uh, sitting around you, the church in Montreal, the church in uh, the province, the church in the world globally, um, do you receive it? Do you, are you, do you recognize your need uh, for the global church? Do you recognize your need for the, the local church, the church in this city? God, God, you see, he used the prayer of that church community to, to, to break me, right? To get me out of the way and so that he could teach me something. Um, and so if you ask, do we as Church 21 recognize our need for other churches? Well, yes, absolutely. We, we know that we can't do what we're called to do on our own. Um, and this doesn't mean, of course, that we don't care about doctrine. Don't, don't hear me saying we don't care about doctrine. But, but we can thank God that there are many, there are many biblical, uh, gospel-centered churches in this city that God is, is using. And so um, we can work together practically with those other churches for the common cause of Jesus. And so when we encounter the grace of God, we're able to decrease and it results in a people who are able to receive with humility. But what else happens? Transformation. We see this in verse 26. 
Now, how was the church at Antioch started? Well, because of the persecution of Stephen. Well, who was supervising the persecution of Stephen? Well, it was Paul. This is the same Paul who ordered the death of the first Christian martyr. And what is he up to now? He's teaching the church. The the persecution, right? Instead of putting out the fire, it spreads the fire. And then even beyond this, you see Paul, who tried to quench the church, is now teaching a church that was planted as a result of his persecution. How extraordinary is that? This is the transforming power of the gospel. This is a kingdom of God kind of thing, right? The things that we intend for evil, God is able to to redeem and to transform and to use for his good purposes. And this is why we preach the gospel. That the gospel is for everyone in every circumstance, any person. And the gospel is able to transform anyone. It can transform me. It transformed, it did. It transformed me. I think back into my life at a time where I just, I pursued power and control until it became such, such a mess. In pursuing power and control, I actually lost control of my life. (laughs) It was one of those weird things. But it was out of this mess that God was able to transform me. Out of this mess, I can look back and I say, this, this is a story of the transforming power of God, a story of his glory. And so the gospel has transformed me, and it's still transforming me. God isn't done with me yet. And God in his, person, his perfect patience, God isn't done with you yet either. God wants to use you. But some of you might be thinking, like, how can God use me? After the things I've done in my life, after the ways that I've messed up, after the ways that I've made mistakes, I'm so ashamed. How could God ever use me? My past, it just, it writes me off. It disqualifies me. Can you imagine how Paul must have felt on, this, on his way to this church? If anybody could say, my past disqualifies me, it would have been the Christian killer, right? Paul. And yet, what does he say about this in 1 Timothy 15. He talks about this. He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, that's Paul, am foremost. But I have received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example. An example to who? Those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, Paul says here that his story was used to exemplify the magnitude of God's perfect, patient grace. In other words, if Jesus is able to rescue, transform, and use Paul, he is able to rescue, transform, and use you. And yet, so what do we say to the sense? I can't be used by God because I've made too many mistakes, that my past disqualifies me. Well, remember then how God used Paul. That if he can use Paul, he can use you. Those things that you intended for evil, God can repurpose them and use them for good. And yet, and yet, if you're always dwelling on your past, if you're always wallowing in the shame of your mess, what happens is your self-absorption, if you're wallowing, it will actually get in the way. But it's the gospel. It's encountering the grace of God 
that actually can free you to repent, free you to decrease, get out of the way, and allow you to be used by God. This is the transforming power of the gospel. So get out of the way. (laughs) Make the gospel known. Allow God to bring that transformation. And finally, we give with generosity. That's verse 27 through 30. Verse 27. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Now, because the Jewish historian mentions this famine, uh, uh, Josephus mentions this famine, we're able to place it from about 45 to 48 AD. But what's extraordinary here is that this church has such confidence in the spirit's leading that they collect money for a famine that hasn't even happened yet. See, sometimes we have a hard time giving to present needs, more or less needs that God is going to tell us are going to take place in the future, right? See, this takes this kind of forward-thinking generosity. This takes extraordinary, extraordinary generosity working in us, right? This This is truly evidence that the gospel was at work in this community. This gospel was at work helping their hearts, making them generous, Helping them see that Jesus was Lord of all. Helping them see that all things ultimately belonged to him. This reminds me of a story that uh, my friend Michael's dad used to tell. His name is J. John, and he's a a British evangelist, but he's he's also basically a comedian. And he tells this story of uh, he's traveling, and he's in an airport, and he buys some donuts, those little cinnamon-covered round donuts, a half a dozen. And he buys them, and he's looking for a place to, to eat them. And there's no free tables, but there is a free seat. So he goes over to the table. Do you mind if I, I join you, if I sit here? And, no problem, the guy says, sit down. And so he has his donuts. And he hasn't even got to take one yet. And the guy sitting across from him reaches forward, pops one in his mouth, and smiles. Like what? But he doesn't, he's, he doesn't. Okay, maybe it's because I were sharing the table. He eats a donut. Some time goes by. The guy reaches forward, pops one in his mouth, looks at him in the eye, and smiles. He's so flustered. He's like, "What is going on?" <laughs> but he keeps his cool. Eats another donut. He keeps working. And then the guy takes another donut. There's only six donuts. He's eaten his third. (laughs) There's only one left. And he's so flustered. He's like, what is going on? He eats the last donut. He's too polite to say anything. And so he finishes up. He stands up to grab his bag. And and sitting there on top of his suitcase, there is his bag of donuts. (laughs) You see, the whole time, he thought his donuts were being eaten. But these donuts, they didn't even belong to him. And J. John goes on to say, see, look, ultimately all the donuts belong to God. (laughs) And knowing that Jesus is Lord, right, knowing that all things ultimately belong to him, look at how this changes the perspective of the things that we're stewarding. 
the things that are in our care. See, seeing Jesus as Lord of all, not just of our donuts, not just of our food, but of all of our resources, this enables us, this frees us to be generous, to have generous hearts, to give with generosity. And so this is what we see in verse 21, uh, 9. So the disciples determine, every one of them according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did this, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so just like Jerusalem was ready to respond to the needs in Antioch and send Barnabas, so you have the church in Antioch now ready to respond to the needs in Jerusalem. There's this exchange taking place. There's love taking place between these regional churches. Regional churches, remember, that would have been very different. That would have had lots of reasons formally to detest each other. right? But they're not focused on themselves. They're not focused inwards. They're not hoarding their resources. No, they've gotten themselves out of the way. They've encountered the grace of God. They're making known a greater name than themselves. They're they're sharing the Lord's resources with the Lord's people. But remember, like you and I, they're ordinary people. But now they're showing what? Extraordinary generosity. And so what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that Antioch, this church, it becomes a vibrant, generous missions hub. There's teachings coming there and doing training. The spirit is moving prophetically like we just saw. This is a church that's giving sacrificially, that's giving generously. And it's from here. Missions are sent out across the world. This becomes a missions hub. This is from where Paul launches his voyages, his missionary voyages. The church in Antioch, an ordinary, a church planted by ordinary unknown people, a church planting church that reaches the world. And so I think the elders would want you to know that we at Church 21 have this vision to be a church like the Antioch Church. A church that, yes, started by ordinary people, but a church planning church. A missionary hub. A vision to see the people that are trained here, raised up here, sent out from here, sent into the city, sent into the regions beyond the city, sent out into the province, so we can participate in seeing thousands of churches planted for the name of Jesus, making his name known, making his name great. It's not about us. You're going to be hearing more about this. Uh, We're going to do a vision series when we kick off the fall. The point is, though, that God wants to use you in this. God wants to use you and me, yes, ordinary people, but for extraordinary things. This is what the Bible is about as a whole. Ordinary people being used for extraordinary things, in extraordinary ways, right, by God. (laughs) And so, to wrap it, you see, we say things like, well, you know, I don't have mentorship, I don't have any connections, God can't use me. But what is the reply? What do we see from the church in Antioch? What was the gospel able to do? To bring unity and diversity. To bring unity in the church in Antioch between different peoples that would have otherwise disdained each other. To bring unity between Jerusalem and Antioch so they were able to share and resources and to love each other. This is what the gospel can do when you say, I don't have any connections. Or you might say, Look at my past. I've made mistakes. God can't use me. But what did we see the gospel is able to do? 
Look at Paul, right? The gospel is able to bring radical transformation. Or you might say, I don't have resources, right? I don't have the ability. I don't have the gifting. God can't use me in this. But look at what the gospel is able to do. The gospel is able to transform our hearts to be generous people. Right? It's not really about how much you give. It's whether your heart has been transformed to be generous by the grace of God, to be inclined to give. And so you might say, you know, I don't have many resources. I don't have much, but it doesn't matter. No matter how small it might seem, God is able to use you in extraordinary ways. And you might be discouraged by the fact that I don't have a lot of skills. I don't have a lot of gifts. I don't have a lot of resources. God is able to use you. God is able to use you. But we need to get out of the way and let him using us. Um, When I was studying theology, there was this guy who came and shared a bunch of stories with us from, from being a missionary. His name was John Bechtel. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but... He tells a lot of stories, but one of the stories he told was uh, when he was young, well, there's stories after when he was young, but to set context, when he was young, he, uh, his family was a missionary family, a foreign missionary family in China, and over time, the Chinese government kicked all the foreign missionaries out of China, and his family was actually the very last foreign uh, missionary family to be expelled from uh, China, and the government like took his whole dad's library put it all in a pile, burnt all the books, and kicked them out of China. And so they ended up in Hong Kong. So he grew up in Hong Kong. And um, one of the things he noticed when he came to Hong Kong, he, he couldn't miss it, it, it was unavoidable, was the amount of poverty there was with children on the street, children living in absolute destitute poverty, thousands and thousands on the streets of Hong Kong. And he wanted to do something about it. He wanted to help these kids in some way. Um, And so he prayed, he asked God for a vision of what to do, and he felt God say, you know, open an orphanage. Okay, open an orphanage. So he started to look around, how do I open an orphanage? And he found three different places that might be suitable for, you know, doing something like a a school and a a summer camp and an orphanage all in one. He found one place in particular was just perfect. It was was for sale, it had foreclosed, and um, so he thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get this. And I have connections, right? And when he was going to school in Hong Kong growing up, he had gone to school with, it turns out, what became to be the governor of Hong Kong. So he thought, okay, I'll go you know, tell old stories with him, swap some old jokes, and then say, hey, I have this vision. So he did that, and it didn't work. And, no, we're not going to start an orphanage on Hong Kong. The government is not behind this idea, this project. And so he was kind of discouraged. Um, but around this time, somebody came to visit Hong Kong, somebody by the name of uh, Billy Graham. And Billy Graham came along with a guy uh, named uh, Walter Malone. And Walter Malone was an American uh, businessman. And while they were there, Walter Malone ended up doing a tour of the city of Hong Kong uh, with John Bechtel. And while they were going around, John uh, explained his vision for, for reaching the kids on the street. And Walter bought into that vision. He says, that's, that's an amazing vision. I think, I think we can make this happen, right? Um, I want to help secure you. Uh, I want to help the, uh, secure this vision for you. When I get back to America, I'm going to raise the money that you need. And so um, Walter went back to America, 
And three months later, John gets a letter from Walter. And so he opens the letter in the post, and it says, uh, Dear John, I have some bad news for you. It didn't go as well as I've hoped. Uh, I've only received one donation for you to buy the camp, which I've enclosed below. And so there was another envelope, and he, he opens the next envelope. And this is a letter from a 12-year-old girl. And she wrote, Dear Mr. Bechtel, I've heard about your vision and what you want to do in Hong Kong. And I've prayed about it. And I wanted to send you my pocket money that God has given me this week to buy ice cream. Please use this money instead to buy the camp. I enclose it with my letter, with much love, Belinda Holmes. And with that letter, there was a $1 bill. And John was so upset, he said he nearly tore up the letter and threw it out. But his wife came and saw the letter and said, no, no. The girl said, use the money to buy the camp. You must use the money to try and buy the camp. And so he went to where the school was, and he went up to the gate, and he yelled, and the caretaker came, and he gave him the note, and the caretaker read it and tossed it aside. And he said, what is this, a joke? And he says, no, no, I insist. This is an official offer for this building. You must take it to the owners of the building. And so knowing Hong Kong law, he didn't you know, drop it. He took it to the owners of the building. And the, the extraordinary thing was that the board was so moved by that note from the girl that they sold him the school for $1. And John tells this story. And there's a big screen. Well, it wasn't a huge screen. There's a screen in the, in the class behind us. And he goes to the next slide. And it's a picture of the biggest stadium in Hong Kong. And it was a gathering of all the people who would come to Jesus while, while, while being taken off the street and learning at that school. There were 60,000 people there. And John was telling this story. This is, well, about 20 years later. He was telling this story. He's using it as an illustration uh, at a church in America. And after the service, a lady came up to him and said, I'm that girl who gave that dollar. She had no idea. For all those years, she had no idea what God was going to do with the money. She had one dollar, right? That's all she had. And she entrusted that one dollar to Jesus. And he used it to make an extraordinary return in his kingdom. Will you entrust yourself to Jesus? Whatever it is you have, whatever skills you have, whatever resources you have. God can use that. The ordinary things of life, God can use to make extraordinary things happen. This is the God that we serve. Will you join me in his mission? God delights and wants to use you. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you use me. I thank you that you use us. You use people who don't have fame, who don't have wealth, who don't have status, who don't have power to achieve your extraordinary purposes, that your kingdom is filled, forged, and built by these small things, but it's built on you. Jesus, you've made the most extraordinary sacrifice of all. You've given us your grace. Help us to receive that grace. Receive it to get out of the way and allow ourselves to be used by you in Jesus' name. Open our hearts by the power of your spirit. Help us to believe in Jesus' name. Amen.